0: Our societies become increasingly obsessed with predicting the future. We find doubt and uncertainty so uncomfortable that entire industries have been created to feed our prediction addiction. But the future remains as unknowable as it always has, despite our technological progress. The COVID-19 pandemic is a perfect example of our forecasting failure. In our new book, Uncharted, how to navigate the future, she chronicles our love affair with prediction and reveals how we can forge ahead with creativity, agility, and preparedness. She explains why our efforts to forecast the future are futile in our complex and ever-changing world and proposes a better way forward. She's a Texas-born, Cambridge-educated author, former media CEO, award-winning journalist, and BBC documentary maker whose TED Talks have been viewed more than 12 million times. Her six previous books include Willful Blindness, which was named one of the most important business books of the decade by the Financial Times. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with renowned business thinker, former CEO, popular TED speaker, and best-selling author, Margaret Heffern. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curve benders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I wanna invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curve benders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're gonna talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Where can you leverage the best sales thought leadership to accelerate your skills, help sales leaders lead, get peer advice, network, learn from industry executives, build your brand, accelerate your career, and ultimately sell more? Whether you're a sales development representative, global account manager, district manager, director, regional VP, or a chief revenue officer, the sales community will help you improve skip the guesswork, and get second opinions so you can ultimately sell more. Learn more and join the sales community where I'll post weekly columns, monthly interactive online roundtables, and even host a podcast with former client and longtime friend Randy Seidel at salescommunity.com. Hi, everybody. David Knorr. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is uh, an incredibly accomplished executive, author, advisor, uh, educator, and uh, someone that I recently had the pleasure of of listening to on on another session. And I immediately reached out and I said, you know, Margaret, I'd love to have you as a guest. And she was more than gracious in accepting the invite. So I want to welcome Margaret Heffernan, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Thank you, David. Uh, Margaret, for those who may not know as much about you, your background, could you kindly share a couple of minutes about where you've been,
1: what you've done, and your journey to this point? Sure. Um, Although it may not sound it from my accent, I was born in Texas. When I was eight, I moved to the Netherlands. And when I was 14, I moved to the UK. And I stayed here finishing my American high school and then going to Cambridge University And then worked at the BBC for 13 years, ran my first company representing film and TV producers, and then moved back to the United States, to Boston, where I ran tech companies for eight years. And then I moved back to England, and uh, where I've lived ever since, in the beauty of the English countryside.
0: Uh, so, the cross pond travel, you have got that part figured out, right? I, just, can, I can do it in my sleep. <laughs> I love it. And you recently published a brilliant new book. Uh,
1: talk a little about the insights. Yeah. Well, I wrote, I've written this book, which comes out in the US uh, next week called Uncharted How to Navigate the Future. Because I just kept being struck by how many people had a way of thinking about the future, which struck me as both uh, flawed and unhelpful. And, you know, to simplify it, really what people were doing is they were looking for people who knew the future. And I started doing a lot of research into all the different models and ways we think about the future. And every single one of them is deeply, deeply intrinsically flawed. And so it seemed to me that in our appetite for certainty, we laid ourselves open to a lot of really bad and in some cases dangerous thinking. And so so the first third of the book is really explaining why all these different models, economic models, financial models, using history as a model, using psychological profiling and DNA as a model really will not help us understand where where we are going, who we will be in the future. And then the rest of the book, which is a very, strangely enough, in this rather difficult time, is a very optimistic book, is saying, okay, so if you can really accept that nobody knows the future and there's, there's a lot of uncertainty around, this is quite liberating. And so how do you use the freedom that it gives you really to think about what you want to be, where you want to go, What you want to achieve in life, and how, instead of waiting for somebody to tell you the future, how do you set off and make your own? So, talk about some of those flawed
0: thinking, dangerous. I I love your comment about dangerous thinking, flawed assumptions. Is is studying the past not a at least a decent indicator of what may lie ahead?
1: Well, not really. I mean, there is this, I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I think studying the past can be very helpful. But there is this belief that history repeats itself. And the danger of doing that is that when you see parallels, you tend to overweight the similarities and underweight the differences. So in politics, you know, the go-to metaphor for all decisions about going to war is Munich. And um, both Eisenhower and LBJ used Munich as a metaphor for going to war in Vietnam. Well, I mean, Vietnam was absolutely nothing like Nazi Germany. And the cultures were different. The history was different. The political alliances were different. The ideology was different. And, you know, and not surprisingly, the outcome was much messier and much different from what those individual leaders had anticipated. So believing that history repeated itself actually proved tremendously dangerous and destructive. Uh, Another great metaphor, of course, is the Maginot Line, which is one of the biggest fortifications in the world. You can see it from the moon, which the French uh, built after the First World War to stop the Germans trying to invade again. And they built it exactly where the Germans had invaded in the First World War thinking, well, they'll do the same thing as history repeats itself. But what happened is the Germans could see them building this massive fortification. So not surprisingly, they changed their own plans. And this is a really wonderful illustration of the fact that actually, because, you know, people in the future know our history in a way that we don't, because we're making it, they have knowledge that we don't and therefore what they will decide and how they should decide and what their options are will be very, very different. And, of course, I think I feel very strongly that this idea that history repeats itself when it comes to individual lives is particularly dangerous. So we have all sorts of horrible myths and narratives, you know, about people who come from what we call broken homes or one-parent families. You know, we tend to think that, wow, if somebody's a junkie, they're always going to be a junkie. Or if someone comes from a family of criminals, they're going to be criminals too. And these beliefs that people can't escape their history are terribly um, reductionist and hugely impede the progress that people are capable of making. And in, in fact... You know, most of the people we admire most in the world are people who defied that idea that history was going to repeat itself in them and created, you know, very successful creative um, careers for themselves. So I don't think that you shouldn't study history. I'm a huge fan of history and spent many years working in television, making films about history. But I think what we need to do is to think about how it teaches us about contingencies and accidents and how people in the past thought that we can learn from but it would be a mistake to imitate.
0: What do you believe our desperation for certainty in the future comes from?
1: Well, I think that, you know, to a large degree, the fact that human beings are pretty good at short-term forecasting has given us a distinct evolutionary advantage. I mean, we're we're really the great future thinkers of all species. And you know what that means is that we we, for example, we can within about five days do a pretty good weather forecast and make plans accordingly in a way that no other species can. Um, we can make plans for tremendous projects like the building of great institutions the building of a legal system, um, the building of cathedrals, you know, which no other other species can do. So our ability to think into the future is a phenomenal creative driver. But I think, you know, that what we often forget, especially in the way that we tell these stories, is that while those achievements (coughs) were made by people thinking about the future, they didn't have certainty about the future. You know, the people who started building the great Gothic cathedrals of Europe knew they wouldn't finish building them in their lifetimes. And, um, and nevertheless, they were able to tolerate the uncertainty of not knowing what it would look like or even if it would stand up. That didn't stop them starting. And my observation of our generation, Is that uncertainty now does stop us starting. That we require, and much of the way we we teach business and do business requires so much certainty about the future that people are become extremely unimaginative and constrained in terms of the things that they're willing to try. And you see this in organizations all over the world, you know, where people say they want innovation. But it's in the nature of innovation that it's riddled with uncertainty. If you're going to do something absolutely brand new that nobody's ever done before, then you don't know how it's going to turn out. Once you decide you have to know how it's going to turn out before you start, you can be sure it isn't innovative, right? And I work with lots and lots of companies who, you know, ask me to help them with creativity and innovation because most of my career has been in creative industries. You know, pretty much the first thing I ask them is, well, let's think about what are you doing to inhibit creativity and your need to know exactly what the product will be, exactly when it will ship, exactly what it will cost, exactly what the profit margin will be before you even start on it. That's why people aren't being creative in your organization, because you can't think freely and imaginatively if you need that degree of certainty before you start. Do you believe this global pandemic
0: has caused us to um, require less certainty? Again, this is is a classic case of nobody knows. a, A lot of executives and a lot of leaders I talk to Certainly believe there'll be an after COVID environment and this too will pass, but the uncertainty does create a lot of angst. Mm-hmm. What do you think, what do you think this, this global pandemic is doing to leaders' ability to start new initiatives, to really think about their reinvention or rethinking yeah. about their business model on the other side of this pandemic?
1: Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because I think that, um, you know, there is a lot about epidemics in my book because that, you know, and I, obviously I, I wrote the book last year, um, but I chose to write about epidemics because they're the perfect illustration of uncertainty. So uncertainty is different from risk because it can't be quantified. And it's in the nature of epidemics that they're always with us. And they are unpredictable because every single one is different. There's no profile of an epidemic. And so although we know they are going to happen, we don't know when they're going to start, where they're going to start, or what the disease will be. So we have kind of the worst of all worlds. We have certainty that they'll happen and uncertainty about all the details that count. It's interesting because, you know, as I said, I think the first third of my book is about how we don't know the future. And I felt at the time I was writing it, As I felt with many of my books that, you know, this was a hard sell at persuading people that the future was fundamentally unknowable was really so counterintuitive. People would find it very hard to deal with. And I think, in fact, what the pandemic has done is it's won the argument for me. Um, You know, we've had a crash course in uncertainty and we're still on the program, so to speak. We don't know when it will end. We don't know how it will end. We don't know if it'll shudder to a halt or if it'll dribble out for years. Um, You know, I live with a a scientist who's an immunologist who, you know, so much is still being discovered about the disease that we only poorly understand. So, So we really don't, we don't know if we're at the beginning, the middle, or the end, and we don't know what the end will look like if it ever comes. So it's, you know, whether we wanted to or not, we now have to accept that uncertainty is with us. I work with lots of organizations from startups to medium-sized private businesses to large publicly traded companies. And my observation is that roughly speaking, they fall into two camps in the way that they've responded to this crisis. The first group... Um, moved to working from home quite quickly, if they, to the degree that they could, and they made some minor modifications to the way they work, but they pretty much stuck to their plan and um, made adjustments and changes and substitutions and so on. But they haven't changed very much. And I think in general, they're quite sad kind of demoralized places because they're doing kind of what they always did, but without any of the energy or confidence that they once had. There's another group of companies and you can't define them by sector or size or location that, you know, they, they moved to working from home really quickly and then they said, okay, we're in a really different place now. And so we have to do a big rethink And think about what are the resources we have, what does the world need, and how do we can reconfigure for this new world in which we find ourselves. And they've really accelerated much of the transformation that they were in the midst of anyway. And I would say that generally speaking, these organizations are um, much more forward-looking, much more optimistic, and much more energetic places to work. The first group are just hankering for a return to the norm which may happen or may never happen. And the second group kind of think well whatever happens we'll just figure it out. And as I said, you know you can't you can't predict which organization's going to fall into which camp. And I see some that sort of started in the first camp that are moving towards the second camp, you know. But I think generally those have been the two responses. And my personal sense is that the second group overall will do better, not just because they're more creative and more energetic, but because, you know, if when the COVID crisis ends, we'll have an economic crisis on our hands. We know that. And we're already also in the midst of a climate crisis. So the idea that we're going to return to some reasonably settled economic social, political environment anytime soon seems to me to be remote. And that doesn't make me especially happy, but I think it is where it is, where we are, we are where we are. And the sooner we get our heads around that reality, the better we're going to be able to cope with it.
0: I love the description of the two camps of companies. Are there some common threads in the second one? Is Is it a visionary leadership? Is it... They are, they are uh, th- as you mentioned, they already were in a, some sort of a transformation and, and this pandemic just accelerated. What are, some, what are some attributes to look for in that second camp of companies?
1: I think it's certainly more ambitious leaders, for sure. I think it's also um, leaders, and I'm using the term kind of broadly, so I'm not talking about only the CEO, um, who are really close to their market or their customers and are using this opportunity to get closer to them and really to understand where the pain points and how can we address those. I would say generally they have a more entrepreneurial mindset, even if they may not be entrepreneurial organizations. I mean, I do some strategy work for a huge strategy firm, which is kind of weird. Um, and I've, I've seen them really be bolder and less stodgy um, than some startups. You know, they really have thought deeply about what they've been through pretty much since the financial crisis to now and reached the conclusion that not only is the status quo gone for good, but that if they're going to survive and remain relevant and respected in the world, they have to change almost everything they do. And, um, and I'm kind of in awe of them because, I mean, this is a very big global firm. This is not a simple task that they've set themselves, and neither are they just um, saying this. You know, they're thinking about how careful they have to be now about the kinds of customers and clients that they take on. Uh, the kind of commitments they take, they make to their employees and to the communities in which they operate. I mean, they're really digging deep. So, um, so I think what's kind of interesting about that is it suggests that actually any kind of firm is capable of this. But coming back to your original point, I think that um, I think the the confidence of the leadership is really pretty fundamental.
0: I had a conversation with the CEO just yesterday and I said, you know, to rethink, reimagine, reinvent your business, number one mm-hmm. it takes courage. Yeah. Number two the commitment to see it through. N- number three the construct, right? The the organization, yeah. the 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 game plan to do that. So, third of, first third of the book, we don't know where the future is going. Uh, do you then jump into great, with all this unknown and uncertainty liberating freedom? Yeah go pave your own path or, or what's, what's, and I'm really curious about prioritized pursuits in that, in that avenue.
1: Well, so, so I write a lot about, um, the need to do experiments to look at, you know, pain points and think, and think about how to resolve them in ways that are different from ways you've used in the past. Um, you know, one of the stories that I tell, well, there are a couple of stories that I tell it, which I think might be of interest. You know, one is about a, a Dutch nursing organization that pretty much rips out the very expensive bureaucracy that typically governs healthcare and gives their nurses huge degrees of freedom. And by doing that, cuts the cost of the health care that they provide by 30 percent because patients get better in half the time. It's a beautiful example of trying things because there's no other way to find out if this is a good area in which to make significant improvements. And I'm very struck. I mean, just before we started talking, I was um, having a conversation, long conversation with a uh, CEO client of mine who's trying to figure out how to get people back to work. And, you know, he's really, really stuck trying to figure out you know how will you offer flexibility and safety and all this sort of stuff and finally I said to him you know you've got to come up with some principles to de- to define how you're going to do this first cuz you have to start somewhere but nobody in the world knows how to do this so there are no models so we have to make your best guess based on principles you can explain that people will buy into and then you have to experiment you have to try something and then figure out, okay, what do we like about it, not like about it, what do we change now? And what I think is so interesting is how because we got so used to forecasting and planning and all this stuff, you know, just the idea of doing something untried was so frightening for him. But but if he doesn't do that, everybody's going to be at home forever, right? (laughs) So So I think the need to do experiments is a – a capacity that companies have got to build up, seeing the opportunities where experiments could deliver real value. Um, I wrote about some in the Bank of England that hugely um, increased productivity. And I talked about, I've written about the um, tremendous experiment, which was led by Cadillac in terms of starting to sell cars as services rather than as, you know, products. Really bold, bold experiment on the part, you know, um, on the part of a, a brand that people thought was really pretty dead and dull. So I think when you can't know the future, experiments are how you find out what areas might yet yield rewards. And I think it's crucial when you do experiments that these are solicited from across the organization, not just the top because one of the things we know from things like open innovation uh, platforms is that good ideas are no respecters of hierarchy. So you really have to get the entire organization involved in thinking about where are the areas that we think we're not very good or our customers don't much like us, and what are the experiments we can do to find opportunities for great leaps forward. Margaret, why do you believe so many organizations
0: are allergic to experimentation or just it, it, it can't just be the lack of uncertainty? You ran, you ran several successful companies. Mm. What keeps leaders, leadership teams, the culture from becoming one of experimentation?
1: Well, I think there are a whole bunch of things. You know, if you're a publicly traded company, you get involved in, you don't have to, but you usually do get involved in this whole thing of doing forecasts. And the forecast becomes the boss, right? If you forecast earnings of whatever, then the whole organization is now committed to that forecast. Now, if you buy my argument that actually you can't do very accurate forecasting, what this really means is the whole organization is following a leader that's highly uncertain by definition. But, um, but it provides a kind of framework and an order uh, which people like. But, you know, but what it means is that people get very, very accustomed to managing with minute detail and if that's your core strength and the imaginative capacity required for experimentation will really get um, run out of the business. You know, that if, if you I would say also that, you know, our obsession with efficiency and metrics has had this same effect. You know, we've we've grown up or many of us have grown up in organizations that really thought of management as like running a manufacturing plant where everything could be measured, and then what you wanted to do was make it a little bit faster, a little bit cheaper, and a little bit bigger. Um, And the problem with efficiency is it delivers tremendous value in environments where there's a high degree of certainty and control. But once you're operating in an environment without certainty, efficiency becomes very dangerous. A it stops you trying things. and B it me- it robs you of margins with which to adapt and respond. So I think in the United States exactly as here, you know an obsession with efficiency in healthcare care meant that when the pandemic broke out, people didn't have enough ventilators, they didn't have enough personal protection equip- equivalent uh, equipment. Um, You know, they often didn't have enough critical care beds. And so, you know, I think we have grown up in an environment which was complicated and which could be managed with efficiency. But we now live in an age which is complex. And it's in the nature of complexity that you can't see the whole system at once. You can't manage every aspect of it. Very small things like viruses can have a gigantic impact and problems that look the same might not be susceptible to the same sorts of solutions. So we're really in a very different living and operating environment than the industrial um, manufacturing environment on which almost all the basic concepts of management were based. And we have this thing, you know, which we, we have leaned on so heavily, this notion of scientific management. You know, scientific management, so-called, is great if you're running a manufacturing plant where you have control over every piece of it. But increasingly, you know, if you take Apple producing its iPhone, for example, right, the iPhone is produced with materials that come from over 20 different countries. That means that all those supplies are hugely influenced by currency fluctuations, civil unrest, political unrest, economic uh, disturbance, uh, critical weather events, all kinds of things over which you have no control. So this is just a wildly different environment than the one in which our parents grew up in and the one which mostly, sadly, is still being taught at business schools and and you know and we keep thinking you know and and with that mindset you know that is absolutely not an experimental mindset at all
0: what do you believe is the role of relationships in this idea of the freedom to create your own path the freedom to explore don't let the uncertainty huh. kind of tether you
1: back yeah well it's it's very interesting because there are two chapters in my book which I mean which look at this in particular um one is a, a chapter called think like an artist which looks at the degree to which artists embrace uncertainty and everything they do is uncertain because they're always doing something that's never been done before and relationships there are gigantically important every artist will tell you that You know, that they get huge amounts of kind of moral support, sometimes financial support, um, artistic support from fellow artists. And often people mock this, but it is really fundamental if you're in a career where certainty is never going to be present. And there's also a chapter about businesses in crises And I wrote about another, a number of companies that just about collapsed for a variety of reasons. And these were really interesting stories. I interviewed the CEOs of all these businesses. And at some point in each interview, each CEO wept, even though these were, these were crises some time ago, but the, just simply remembering the intensity of the experience um, was quasi traumatic for them. And so I asked them, you know, if this was so, if even remembering this is so terrible, so that's just a tiny amount of how horrible clearly the reality was, what on earth made you keep going? Because you're a successful guy, you know, you could have walked away. And every single one of them said, well, what kept me going were my colleagues. You know, that they would ha- they would carry my bag and I would carry theirs. They would cover my back and I would co- carry theirs. That well, Actually, the reason we kept at it and the reason we were able ultimately to save our businesses was because we looked after each other. And, you know, as you probably know from my TED Talks, I think this level and quality of social support is absolutely the heart of resilience in any organization. You know, companies don't have ideas. Only people have ideas. And what motivates people at work is each other. And so the more we manage people like machines and, you know, time their every move and record their every uh, keystroke, And the more we develop these absurd and insulting artificial intelligent apps, prompting them to work in particular ways or even how to conduct a conversation, the less motivating our workplaces become and the less creative our people become. And they may become fantastically efficient, but they are so unmotivating and uncreative, I suspect many of them will also become Fantastically irrelevant very quickly.
0: That is uh, unfortunately a trend that you continue to see uh, of that trade off between a a more efficient, more uh, optimized process versus the, the human effect, the human impact. You and I spoke about curve benders as relationships in our lives that dramatically change our direction. Our destination beyond good bosses, good coaches, good mentors, they have the opportunity to profoundly change not just what we accomplish, but who we become. Can you think of one or two curve benders in your own life, in your own journey and success to date?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that definitely one was my father. Uh, I mean, my father came from an extremely impoverished background in Texas, his father was a coal miner and for most of well for most of his career he worked as a corporate executive for Exxon and so throughout my childhood i watched really how how much he hated his work i watched how much they bullied him and made him do things he didn't want to do and that left me with a profound passion i guess around managing people with humanity, and never working for an organization that would treat me the way that that organization treated him. It also left me with an abiding passion for having what I think of as running away money, which was, you know, keeping my overheads low enough to ensure that if I found myself working in such a place, I could afford to leave. So he had a very, very profound influence on me. And quite interestingly, late in life, he became an entrepreneur and um, and made more money and had more fun than the rest of his career put together. And when I was living in Boston, he and I used to talk to each other every Saturday morning about how his business was going and how my business was going. And it was fantastic. It was a kind of late flourishing for him and, you know, a really a wonderful and in a way to our relationship. So I guess that's one person. I think another person is, uh, you know, when I worked at the BBC, I directed quite a lot of plays. And one of the many, many fine actors that I worked with was Alan Rickman. And, I, I mean, everybody knows Alan was a great actor. You don't need me to say that. But he is a really exceptional human being. He was incredibly generous in his support of people at the beginning of their careers in all walks of life, he was absolutely obsessively polite and caring to people. And, you know, I know people who, I mean, if you go onto a film set, caterers will talk about how polite and grateful and appreciative Alan always was. I mean, he became kind of legendary in this respect. And he really imbued me with this sense that you treat everyone as an equal and you treat everyone with meticulous courtesy and attention and curiosity, that taking interest in people is the greatest compliment you can pay them. And he's a kind of gold standard in my head because it wasn't, you know, I mean, I on some level, I guess, I took his great acting for granted, because that's why we were always working together. But, you know, not everybody has the same high standards in terms of how they work with others. And, I mean, he is just in my head is my conscience now. You know, when I get tired or fed up and I just want to say something or do something a bit pissy, you know, it's very conscious in my head that that is not something that Alan would have done and had he seen me do it, would have been appalled. I love
0: that. It's all like Alan on your shoulder. Like, what would Alan do? Yeah. <laughs> Margaret. Margaret, that's not the polite thing to do at the moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and he was someone, you know, whose respect everybody craved.
0: Sounds like a lovely, lovely person. Uh, question of you is in thinking of the lives you've impacted in mm. throughout your journey, what do you believe are some attributes that make a great curve vendor in the lives of others?
1: Mm. Well, in a way, you know, all this stuff that Alan taught me is definitely that. I mean, it's very interesting. I'm sort of very informally mentor, a strategy director at a big retailer here in the UK, and said something really lovely to me the other day. She said, you know, almost every good thing that happens to me seems to come from you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad that's true. That's just one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. I mean, I think I you know, the where I sit at the moment in my career is I feel very fortunate, you know, I've had a fabulous career. I have huge amounts of freedom to do what I want as I want. And I have lots and lots of resources in terms of people I know and stuff I know. And so increasingly, what I try to do is, you know, if I meet somebody interesting, or I read something really interesting, my sort of first thought is, who could really benefit from this? You know, if I meet somebody really fascinating, I think, okay, well, who would really value knowing this person? Let me see if I can make that introduction. Or if I read something really pertinent, I think, okay, who could use this in something that they're doing? So I have this kind of basic view that if you're, if you have power and influence, what you really want to do is give it away. And, you know, and there's a kind of irony in that because the more you do that, actually, the more you end up with. But I don't think that's reason the reason. really the reason to do it. I think it's just more fun.
0: Margaret, this has been uh, delightful. So you, you were uh, every ounce what I had hoped in our discussion, our conversation. And I'm grateful for the gift of your time and your insights. And uh, I cannot wait to read Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future. Sounds uh, fascinating in your lens, your perspective, and uh, your... Uh, insights into do not let those uncertainties hold you back. So thank you for being a guest on the Curvebenders podcast. What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you
1: and your work? Uh, The best thing is just to go to my website, which is www.mheffernan.com. And all my books and lots of other stuff can be found there.
0: A lovely set of resources and all kinds of great articles and interviews and, uh, and some great, great books that you've written in the past. So thank you again for being our guest on the Curvebenders podcast.
1: Well, thank you, David, for your wonderful questions. <laughs>
0: If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our Nor Forum community. So go to norgroup.com/forum and check out the Curvebenders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Margaret Heffernan. Three comments Margaret made during our interview really resonated with me. Number one, this incredible notion that I think uh, most of us have experienced where uncertainty stops us from starting, starting new ideas and really uh, imagining and, and really shedding the constraints to be creative, to really embrace they need to change and think differently. Number two, she talked about two different two different camps of companies: uh, some that are making minor modifications and they're stuck to their plan, and not much change is happening. And others who are in a different place, and they are going through a big rethink. I think she called it, and they are looking at resources and their needs, and they're reconfiguring their business models. And she said their you know second camp is led by ambitious leaders who are really leveraging this pandemic to rethink, reimagine, reinvent with an entrepreneurial mindset the future version of their organizations. Last but not least, uh, I love her reference to relationships and two chapters in particular in her new book, Think Like an Artist and Business in Crisis, of the incredible value of your relationships and how fundamental they are in uncertain times. Don't forget, I turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So check them out in our free member-based community, Nor Forum. Join us at norgroup.com/forum. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content, most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm using the hashtag Curvebenders podcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates.